Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Weapon of Choice podcast. We are thrilled to be back and bring you another awesome episode with another awesome guest. This next episode is one of our series of New York City interviews. And this last time we were in New York, all of our guests we got to set, sit down with. Uh, we didn't have to leave Brooklyn. They were all living in Brooklyn and we were staying in Brooklyn. So as it worked out, um, <laughs> we were flying into New York for that trip and uh, kind of got... Uh, you know, thrown off by the U.N. assembly going on and all the hotels were like six hundred dollars a night or more. And New Jersey was even sold out and the B&Bs were sold out. And we're like literally on the tarmac getting ready to take off from Minneapolis, still not having a place to stay. And then we'll save you the story that you wouldn't even believe maybe for another time. But we ended up meeting some meeting a good soul and, and a good new amazing friend uh, who hosted us and that. <laughs> That person ended up being a perfect guest for Weapon of Choice because they've been a social justice muralist for 10 years. We'll get more into that another time, but let's just say that uh, our trip into Brooklyn and New York started off well, and our first interview in Brooklyn was none other than Blair Imani, and we're so excited to bring you this episode. Andrew, uh, how do we begin to tell people a little bit about who Blair is before we get into her words and her voice when we're having that conversation. I mean, Blair Imani, she's an author. We'll call her a historian. And she's been doing so much on the activism front and the freedom fighting front, all the way from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, around the globe, actually. If you if you just look her up, she's just uh, kind of on a tear, not just because she's an author. Um, she's, she's speaking out so much for... Uh, people like herself, uh, Blair is living at that intersection of black, queer and Muslim identity. She's the author of an amazing upcoming book coming out on October 16th called Modern Herstory, Stories of Women and Non-Binary People Rewriting History. And that tells the stories of 70 contemporary heroes who are changing the world. You got to check out that book and order that book. I can't talk about it enough. And uh, yeah, Blair, she's also if that wasn't enough, she's the founder an executive director of Equality for Her, a nonprofit educational platform for women and non-binary people. She's been giving talks at all the universities. She's been giving talks around the world, from here to London to Germany, um, really uh, weaving those intersections that involve her uh, most direct identities to uh, spread the word for uh, some some powerful change all across the globe. And uh, she's only getting started. And we were blessed to be able to sit down in Brooklyn with her on this last trip to New York. Shout out to Tommy Harris, who's a, a colleague of mine here in Minneapolis who had uh, uh, his friends who are a couple in uh, Brooklyn let us use their apartment as a makeshift studio. And uh, one day we'll have the funds to uh, rent out a studio and we're gonna get there. We know it, we have faith and we know that a lot of people already have so much faith in us that they're giving to our Patreon. 
You can become a supporting member of Weapon of Choice Podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more stuff like it, check it out. Come on. You know you want to give us some, you know, some some funds and help us out. We're trying to like compete with the best NPRs, the what have you's, but this is special menu productions. We're gonna give you that special menu. You're gonna walk in, you're gonna walk into the restaurant that is our podcast. And we're going to deliver you a meal, many courses, because our guests talk about many issues and many, many subjects and many identities even and all those things. And you can imagine a whole lot more if you've been listening, you know what we're about. If you're, if you're new to Weapon of Choice, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and share them with your family and friends, share them far and wide. Share them on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Weapon of Choice Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast and on Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. Please click that share button, especially when we release an episode. This is all organic. We need your help. We're trying to get going. We're trying to get these dollars behind us. Actually, if you're contributing a dollar or more a month, you are a Weapon of Choice community member and we value your support each and every time, each and every month. So thank you so much. All right, without further ado, here is this week's episode. My name is Blair Imani. I am a black, bisexual, Muslim person. I've been describing myself as an activist. Um, I'm trying to pivot because um, being an activist is so fraught with people feeling like they have uh, ownership over what you do because you're a community organizer. Um, So now I'm an author. And I'm thinking about the word historian. I'll be writing another history book soon. Um, once that book's out, then I'll be like, Blair Imani, author, historian. Uh, till then, just person, shit talker, you know, yes. those things. Yes. When did, when did that switch happen where you just decided, like, I'm not going to use activist, activist. In my title? I decided not to use activist anymore because so many of my activist friends and, like, acquaintances um, get this type of get this very like specific type of harassment where why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you also doing this? And um, it's it's gotten to a point where it's just, you know, I do feel like at a certain point there's um, an enoughness, right? And enough of how much work you're doing and enoughness of how many people you're coordinating with, et cetera. Um, and so when people ask you for more, once you reach that maximum point, it's like, what do you want? Like you feel like Seymour with the giant plant in, a uh, little little shop of horrors. It's like, what do you want, blood? Like, mm-hmm. um, just the way that we turn everyday people into martyrs once they take the activist title, and it becomes really toxic. Um, not to say that other folks who describe themselves as activists are any less valid. I just think it's a, a title that I am uh, starting to work my way out of. Yeah. What? What do? You, how do you feel about that uh, adage of you must bring your whole self to this, otherwise you're not committed. I think that the reality is we can't sometimes bring our whole selves. You know. Um, and being what to this means, you know, I hear like a lot of corporate folks because uh, I do a lot of diversity and inclusion talks and I hear a lot of corporate folks say we want our staff to be vulnerable. And, and when they say vulnerable, sometimes they actually just mean submissive. They just mean quiet. Um, they mean not uh, not being them full selves, or, but being the self that they expect you to be. So I think um, the ideal is to bring your whole self everywhere you go. <clears throat> But the reality is that there's code switching that happens. There is um, playing the role that 
you're playing for the day for the sake of, you know, either getting a check, you know, trying to accomplish something or really not being able to say who your full self is. I'm really um, like privileged, honestly, to be able to be as much of myself as I am publicly. Um, but then it, it's a double edged sword because once you reveal who you are to people, they feel like they um, deserve more. And it's coming again to that enoughness of like, when is enough, you know? Mm. Um, when is the point where it's like, I've given so much of myself, I'd like to have this personal part not be public. And then people start asking, well, why am I not seeing this? Why are you not posting about this? Um, so bringing your whole self, it's, um, it's a difficult standard to meet in this world that tells you you shouldn't be yourself so often. Mm-hmm. Um. And then there's like, you know, have you ever had to deal with criticism for being good at code switching? Oh, all the time. Are you kidding? So like my mom, for example, doesn't code switch. She's a light skinned, pretty much white passing, uh, you know, black woman. And she does not code switch whatsoever. And I always thought that was so interesting because, you know, you see her and, you know, she is she's a sharp dresser. She drops off at school and like the teachers in this predominantly white area would be like, oh, hi, Mrs. Brown. And she'd be like, what's up? Like, that's just who she is. And it's not like her putting on um, a different voice. That's who she is. She's from South Central Los Angeles. She, you know, carries her community with her constantly. But it was so funny because one of my teachers described my mom to me like, you know, you see white woman, but you hear black woman, you know? And so my mom has always kind of been this pinnacle of like not code switching. Then you have my dad who is like, I guess, an archetypal black man, like in sense of like, you look at him, you could tell he's black, he's dark skin, you know, um, he has the features, everything. And uh, he speaks, I guess, how a white person is supposed to speak. Like he doesn't really use a lot of slang, but that's authentic to him. So if you were to speak with him, you might assume that he's code switching constantly, but that's just his voice. Mm-hmm. He uses those $10 words all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he does code switch like when we are praying at Thanksgiving, for example, he'll code switch into being um, the pastor. And it's really funny. He'll be like, <laughs> we thank God for these libations and this satisfaction. And, you know, he'll do all the all the fun stuff. But um, uh, myself personally, I like on Twitter, for example, um, have found myself like depending on the subject matter, depending on who I'm speaking to, code switching mostly over text. You know, when I speak, I'm, I'm generally using the same vernacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I am trying to relate to a community, um, not that I'll like falsely or inauthentically um, utilize language that I don't commonly use. But like if I'm talking about hip hop, I'm going to speak how I talk about hip hop, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to tweet about that in, in that way. Um, but I've tried to bring my community mi- with me as much as I possibly can. Like when I spoke at Harvard, I talked about what Yeezys meant to me and what Yeezys <coughs> meant to a young person who I met at a protest. Um, and you you get the chuckles from people because they think it's ludicrous that you're bringing up sneaker culture in a mm-hmm. place of higher learning. But these things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and I've also been blessed because of, uh, well, not blessed, but privileged in terms of light skin privilege to be able to get away with more um, than my darker skin counterparts. Yeah. So what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? I think my weapon of choice is social media. You know, I think that for me, social media can be a weapon for good and for bad. That's like communications at large. Um, When I was in Chile studying um, 
uh, kind of fascism and the history of Pinochet and the regime there and how um, people were getting disappeared, los desaparecidos, just people who were everyday folks um, who belonged to poorer classes who would just get swept, swept off the streets um, and seeing like children's illustrations of one day my dad was here at home. I don't know where mm -hmm. he is now. Like mm -hmm. that being not just one child, but like, you know, seeing 50 portraits on the wall of people experiencing their family being disappeared. Um, and the way that people really came out of that was with uh, media. Uh, they had state, so basically they had the state mandated media, and then they also had media um, for the people, like the public media. And it was through having cameras on injustices and having um, a lens into what people were going through that they were able to start to dismantle this fascist state um, and then usher in a more uh, equal or less fascist society. Um, and that really inspired me because as that was happening, it was the same time that Trayvon Martin had been killed by George Zimmerman. And I was seeing how people were using social media to counteract the state's, um, you know, like narrative of what had happened. And I just felt like there were so many parallels and I just got back from Germany thinking about how media um, was used against German people to say, you know, everything's hunky-dory. This fascism thing is great. And then um, seeing or working with the folks from the Social Democratic Party who existed before the rise of Nazism um, and seeing how they dealt, deal with that legacy. They call it a legacy of um, a culture of remembrance to remember where they've come from, but also mm -hmm. using social media, media at large to recover and heal from it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think that um, it's a weapon like anything can be used for good or bad, but the ideal is to use it for good. Sure. Um you think back to a specific age, moment, could be childhood, could be teenage, where um, a specific age where you realize you're not normal? Let's see. Um, well, I think like more so than that, it was the age where I realized like normal is a construct. Mm -hmm. um, I had very radical parents, so construct was a word we used in the house a lot. Um, like gender is a construct, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in yeah. fact, my mom named me Blair because it's a unisex name and it's not going to disadvantage me in a world where patriarchy is prioritized. Um, nobody's going to throw away my, you know, uh, resume. resume. Of course, Blair Brown, which is my legal name, uh, got a lot more callbacks for interviews than Blair Imani does. So um, mm. it's interesting to see how racialized um, and gendered uh, names can affect you. But going back to the construct idea, um, my younger sister is autistic and bipolar. And I remember always pushing back on the idea, like I would have adults who would come to me and be like, what's wrong with your sister? Or why is she doing that? And it's like, what's like what? Like what's wrong with you? Like why, why are you expecting Chelsea to behave a certain way? That's my sister's name. Mm. Um, and so from a young age, I was pushing back on the idea that like all people uh, behave a certain way or should behave a certain way. Um, because for example, Chelsea, um, she struggled saying threes. She would make an F sound. So free three would come out free. Um, and so we started going to speech therapy and that's something that she needed. And I went along with her. So that way I could kind of, uh, be acclimated to, um, her education style. And then I ended up needing, uh, speech therapy as well. So it's these things that we assume are, specialized or for uh, or accommodations that certain people need when it actually en ends up benefiting everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a, a time where I realized that like normal, 
normal is not going to speech mm -hmm. therapy, mm -hmm. but it is a huge advantage when you're able to then communicate your messages more clearly um, to a larger group of people. And I, I just, I never looked at um, Chelsea or myself as lacking something that other people didn't have. I think that sometimes when we talk about difference, it can, it's in terms of like what I lack that somebody else has. And I just felt like it was an abundance of, you know, creativity. Like we, um, we froze water balloons one time just to see what would happen. We always had like this curiosity and this space to like grow and change. Um, but I also felt really blessed because in middle school, I, I didn't really feel like I had to conform. Like there was a, a point where like everyone was getting pantsed. Like that was the big thing. Like, oh, <laughs> like you're getting pantsed. Uh, and I was just like, this is dumb. Like I don't need to, this is ridiculous, this is abusive. Like I don't need to be part of this group so bad. Um, mm -hmm. So I just hung mm -hmm. out in the library all the time. And that really like bolstered my love of books and writing. Um, and it's funny cause my mom just connected with the librarian at the middle school and was like, my daughter just wrote a book. And I was like, she was like, I knew she'd write a book one day. <laughs> and I was like, that's wild. So I didn't even know that, you know? Um, so I just kind of, instead of being on the playground and dealing with this like, collective abuse, I was like, I'm going to the library, bye, you know? Um, and I think it's been advantageous for me, but just having that confidence of not needing to belong to a group so badly that you're gonna deal with hazing. Um, yeah. A lot of people get to adulthood and they still struggle with being not part of a group mm -hmm. um, and being fear. okay with it. It's mm -hmm. a fear, yeah. How far apart are you and your sister? Two years. And when you started pushing back, the people who asked ridiculous questions like, what's wrong with your sister? Like. You know, you would like vocally push back oh, yeah. to grown people, and like, what were how how did they react to you? Like, well, now, I remember like there was one really like traumatic situation where this like I, I also remember this woman who was being an ass to us, just like as a vile witch, like from Snow White. I don't know if that's actually how she looked, or if like four year old Blair ascribed oh. all these qualities. Mm -hmm. Also, shout out to Disney for making. Like in the realm of Disney, if you're ugly, you're an evil person, you know? But um, shout out to Disney for that. But anyway, um, my sister was like goofing off, being a kid, you know, like on a valet parking um, cart, you know, they have like the keys labeled with the tags and they'll mm -hmm. also put them to hang up. Well, Chelsea was having a ball of the time just taking the keys out and being like, ha ha ha. She wasn't mixing up the keys. It was honestly very harmless. Mm -hmm. um, just like pull them off, put them back on, you know. And then this like random old white lady comes up and starts yelling at my mom and yelling at my younger sister. And I just remember like, this is dumb. Like, who <laughs> you have nothing to do with us. And my parents, um, I don't actually know if they encouraged me to be, out, be outspoken, mm -hmm. but I kind of came that way. Um, and then I started talking when I was like eight months, because uh, I guess I think it's because we watched a lot of television. I do think that's why. Um, my mom would read me like People magazine instead of lullabies or whatever. So I have pretty good mastery of the English language. So I came off as like six years old, even though I was four. Anyway, so she's like, "You can't control your kids. What are you doing? Like you're a horrible mother." And I was like, "Excuse you, like." <laughs> just kind of like what an adult would say to another adult in that situation. I was like, excuse you, you can mind your own business, you know? Um, and it was like one of the first times I actually saw my mom cry because she was having, she was, you know, a young mother. She was probably like 30 at the time dealing with a younger a daughter who's autistic. And she doesn't really at that point, I don't think she really fully understood um, what Chelsea needed to succeed mm -hmm. in life. Um, we thought Chelsea was deaf at a certain point because she didn't speak till she was about four years old. I started speaking very early. So they're like, what is the normal quote unquote mm -hmm. progression of mm -hmm. um, childhood development? Yeah, yeah. 
having um, kind of two daughters uh, on these different tracks so close in age. I did have older, I have older siblings as well. Um, but it was, it was difficult because I kept asking my mom questions like, why did that lady act that way? Why did this happen? And my mom was having a hard time answering it. And like, she was like, mommy doesn't want to talk about this right now. Let's talk about something else. And she was crying. And I realized like that was a difficult situation for her too. So I was really proud that I was able to speak up at a time where my mom felt voiceless, um, even though I was so young. And so that kind of gave me the strength to continue doing that. But it's not just me. My younger sister was that way too. Like um, there was a kid who was grabbing younger kids on a playground. Chelsea was like the playground monitor. Okay. Um, and she was real small for like the longest time. Now she bodybuilds and she's like, I got it. Uh, she always had this like um, strength beyond her size though. But there is this kid who was climbing up the front of the slide, pulling kids off, sliding down, like basically being a jerk. Mm -hmm. Chelsea grabs him by the, to the chest and is like, you need to wait in line like everybody else. And like picked him up, sat him down <laughs> and he, he cooperated. Um, but then there was another time where we were in a bounce house and this kid was picking on other kids. Chelsea grabbed him, put him on the ground. It was like, pick on somebody your own size, you know? Um, and so I always clapped back at people verbally and Chelsea always threw a little bit of physical intimidation in there. Mm. Um, but I was so glad bringing it full circle back to middle school. When we got to middle school and people were messing with both of us, I would talk shit and Chelsea would come in and then the yard monitors would look the other way. Um, but it was the Brown sisters, you know? Um, mm. But it really became a team and those things that made us quote unquote different, um, when we didn't get invited to as many parties, whether that's because we are, we're black and uh, people had anti-blackness they were dealing with or because they had stigma against mental disabilities, it didn't really bother us because it was like, well, more free time for us, more time to play computer games, more time for us to win at Kingdom Hearts, you know, mm -hmm. big game. More, more time for us to play Neopets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you made a good point about how adults, um, people enter adulthood and they don't shake that fear of being alone or fear of being not in with the pant, the, the pants pullers and whatnot, adult versions of that. Um, you, you kind of shed all that at such an early age and now you, I mean, you probably see things so differently in terms of uh, everyone's, especially with social media and society's codependence on approval and like skirt, skirting judgment where you're not skirting judgment you're just like more time for me to go be in the library more time for me to write this book or my next book and become a historian of sorts and modern history stories of women and non-binary people rewriting history it's coming out in october october um, 16th october 16th 2018 but it's available for pre-order now yeah <laughs> start with all the other booksellers and then if you have to use amazon no, yeah, if you go to modernhistory.com, there's like indie books, yeah. there's a variety of different yeah. um, Hudson there books. There are options. Yeah. Um, it's been difficult, speaking about Amazon, to just go on a little tangent here, yeah. it's been difficult because like something that really helps as a bookseller, as, as an author, is to be on one of those Amazon lists. But at the same time, like um, my, my friends are you know, out here protesting rightfully these horrible policies that Amazon has when it comes to like not letting their workers go to the bathroom, people going into labor, working at the, yeah. at the warehouses. And it's like, how do I, you know, invest in my own sales, right? And my career as an author and simultaneously reject this garbage. Um, it's similar to 
some of my author friends were like getting on the New York Times bestseller list is amazing. But at the same time, the New York Times is complicit in this fake news, in this like wheelhouse of uh, white apologetics. Mm. And so mm. will calling them out burn a bridge that could be advantageous to me. Um, so it's been it's been interesting as an author activist using activist again, mm. but somebody who has values that are rooted in workers' rights and community rights, um, but also trying to exist in a capitalist system. Yeah, yeah. So. But you're confident you're doing, I mean, you seem to be doing it in a way that works best for you. And at the end of the day, when you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, what's working for me? Or like going to bed at night. You always have to go to bed at night with your values in check because you live with yourself. You come in the world with yourself and you go with yourself, you know? And it's a matter of who you help and harm along the way. So I always try to think, at the end of the day, did I hurt more people today or did I har- or did I help more people? We live in a capitalist system. You're always going to be hurting people. Yeah. Um, but it's a matter of recognizing that and trying to minimize that harm and put good in the world, which is part of the reason why um, I wanted to write the book. Mm-hmm. And talk about collaborating with the illustrator and like what was inspiring about getting to the finish line in that in that collaboration. Yo, we didn't even think we were going to publish it. You know, like. I, my mom was so like, uh, she gave me like a, a praise drag, you know, one of those where your mom puts you in check completely, um, where she was like, oh, I thought we were going to have to like, you know, I was worried we were going to have to like refinance the house to publish this book. I'm so glad you got a publisher. And I was like, ow, thanks. Like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, ow, thank you. Like, um, a mother's love. But anyway, um, so we thought we were going to have to self-publish. You know, my mom, what she meant to say, I guess, was that she really believed in the concept and was concerned that the publishing world wouldn't be prepared right, for right. that work. And that's mm-hmm. real. Yeah, yeah, it's really real. Like, even when I had the meeting with um, Caitlin Ketchum, who's my amazing editor, also her last name's Ketchum. She spells it just like Ash, Ash Ketchum. Yeah. So when I met with her, I was like, this is my editor, 100%. <laughs> like, I really wanted to do like a reveal of like, with. where she's a video, this video where she has two Pokeballs and she throws them down and then me and then the illustrator Monique come out the Pokeballs and we're like, we made a book. Um, <laughs> we don't have that special effects budget, but <laughs> inshallah one day. Anyway, so when we had the meeting and she was like, well, we have so many women's books, you know, like Rad Women Worldwide, Women in Science, mm-hmm. uh, Women in Sports, um, all by amazing women, um, but also written by white women. Um, mm-hmm. And so I made, I, I thought I was throwing away the interview when I told her this, but I was like, uh, so yeah, you have those books, but uh, they're written by white women. And I think it's a little bit, inauthentic to have books you're proclaiming you have diversity but you don't have diversity in, in the publishing market and i 100 percent thought she was going to be like screw this black radical yeah, i'm yeah. going home but she came back like within two days with an offer and um nice. it was like a moment where she was able to challenge her entire staff to be like we need to you know put our money where our values are and so um but the way that we even got to that level of realizing that we could have a book was lavar burton shouted us out on twitter he uh, quote tweeted my fundraising campaign. We were fundraising to do the research. And mm-hmm. he said, somebody published this woman's book. Mm-hmm. And it was like, quote tweeted on a tweet where I said, hey, Twitter, um, Modern History is almost done, but we still don't have a publisher, do your thing. One of those Twitter do your thing moments. And LeVar Burton was like, 
I'm here. And so he re- tweeted it. But if you look on the back of the book, he actually did our quote tweet. Or not our quote tweet, my bad. But the oh, blur. The blur uh, yeah. I'm, such a, I'm such a Twitter person that everything's Twitter. But he did our blurb on it. And at the end of the blurb, he says, but you don't have to take my word for it. And that's from Reading Rainbow. And Reading mm. Rainbow was actually what helped me be a confident reader. Mm, look at that. So like, it was a full circle thing. Like, um, How did that feel? It was so, so when I told, I, I put on Twitter one day, I think it was like, like May or something. And I was like, I hope that one day I can thank LeVar Burton for teaching me how to be a, an enthusiastic reader, basically teaching me how to read. Um, and then he replied and he was like, you just did, but you don't have to take my word for it. I legitimately cried for two hours. Like I was like, tears of joy. It was like when Donald Glover meets LeVar Burton in Community, right? He's like, LeVar Burton. I was like, I came out of the room into the living room. My partner was working on the couch. I was like, babe, LeVar Burton and I just talked on Twitter. Like I, I might start crying again. Like it was like so surreal, you know? Um, and then so I think I was like DMing the the fundraising campaign to a bunch of different people. And I didn't really expect him to even see it. He's a busy dude, you know? Yeah. Um, and he saw it and then took it upon himself to say somebody published this woman's book to yeah. 2 million people who are in the book industry. Yeah. And mm. people were reaching out to us. We want to see a book proposal. We want to uh, meet with your book agent. And I was like, what's a book agent? What's a proposal? <laughs> um, but I finessed it. And I was like, no problem. I'll get back to you yep, yep. shortly. And then I will like, going to all my friends who have written a book before. And I was like, what's a proposal? What's an agent? What do we do? Um, my friend Lori, who's also featured in the book, had a roommate who, Greta Moran, is our book agent now, and hung out with Greta. I had no clue that Greta had been a book agent. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's our book agent now, and taught me how to make a proposal. Themanis Jones got on the phone with me, taught me how to make a proposal from work. And I was like, oh my God, I get to talk to Themanis Jones. Like It was just like a whirlwind yeah, two yeah. hours where I made a scrappy proposal mm-hmm. and then um i was in san francisco for uh, an event with glad and 10 P- 10 speed press is based there and caitlin ketchum came just hours before i was doing this event and wanted to meet with me and i was like sure why not another rejection but it ended up being um my editor not only for, for this book for but for my next book awesome you know and one thing your book obviously does is make people seen you know, whether they're famous or not, it makes people seen. And sometimes when people's stories are brought to light, sometimes they're sad. Um, and I ask, because they're all beautiful stories, and sometimes beauty is sad, but is that because much of it isn't seen? I think so. Um, I think that so many people in the book didn't have role models that they wanted growing up. Mm. So people like Melissa Thompson, who's a black um, disabled woman. She has osteogenesis imperfecta, which is also known as brittle bone disease. She really wanted to see black women depicted um, with disabilities because the disability conversation was largely about white men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had that great moment of representation on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood um, where there's a young man in the wheelchair. Um, and but it was a it's a you know young white man. And so it's like what how much of me is being valued how much of me is being seen um and then there were so many women i spoke to and non-binary folks who had assembled this collage of people that looked like them right so before tiana i was trying to like make this chimera of a disney princess that i looked like and i was like okay so like Belle's hair kind of when my mom straightens it and like this person and maybe pocahontas skin color and like you know all these different things and that was just such a common thread because we weren't mm-hmm. seen, so we were trying mm-hmm. to create our own heroes, and we became our own heroes. So um, I was really uh, delighted to put Velissa on the cover because 
we we need to see people that are different from us and who are similar to us so we can appreciate it in the world like i didn't realize that i i didn't think i could have a, a career in law um growing up i went to law school for seven weeks dropped out didn't work out but i went there um <laughs> small victories, but until I saw Kamala Harris on TV running for, um, I think, attorney general mm -hmm. and in California, and I was like, yo, she looks like me and my family, you know? Like, this is a possibility. And that made my interest in law even further. Um, and I got to law school, blah, 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 all that. Didn't work out, but I didn't realize, like I had been told my whole life that I could do anything, but I still had these mental barriers. Um, mm -hmm. But going back to Melissa briefly, I had asked her, um, how do you want to be depicted? Uh, do you want to be depicted as a portrait? We have everybody in portraits, or do you want us to show you with your chair? And she was like, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I was like, what? You know, she's featured frequently, you know? Mm -hmm. But for people to never have asked her how she wants to be seen, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we were asking people along the way, like, how do you want to be seen? How do you want to be depicted? How do you want your story to be written? And it's amazing to do that now um, before people pass, you know, before people get burnt out, before people leave the, the um, public arena, because it shouldn't be um, other people to define who we are. We should be able to define our realities sure. and our experiences. Um, so I did that kind of throughout the book with different people. And you, I mean, obviously it's, obviously it's work in your career that you're embarking upon. So you're doing the research, you're doing these interviews with these women and non-binary folks. Um, but now that you ha have talked to all these people, how, what does it feel like to know these women and non-binary folks? So I don't know everybody, you know, uh -huh. I don't know Rihanna or Oprah yet. Um, <laughs> a big yet. Um, but then to see like small connections, like mm -hmm. people who I felt like were totally out of t like out of reach. Um, like mm -hmm. Solange actually was at the protest that was run by the youth that I mentor mm -hmm. in Baton Rouge mm -hmm. um, and was there in my same space hours before I got arrested in Baton Rouge. I had no clue about that until I was doing this research. And I'm like, I was trying to talk about how she's really dedicated to uh, racial justice. And I was like, she's even gone to protests. And I was like, y'all, she even went to my protest, you know? So like, I put that on Twitter. I was like, I did not know that. Um, and so it's a cool thing to be closer in proximity to people who you truly admire um, than you ever thought possible. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And then there's um, just people who like uh, Francesca Ramsey, who has the book, uh, Well That Escalated Quickly, kind of talking about how she did that video, shit white girls say to black girls. And then overnight people were like, you're a racial justice activist and historian. Can we ask you some questions? And she's like, uh, I'm a comedian, you know? <laughs> and so having to like meet the expectations of people mm -hmm. uh, overnight and what that means. Um, but I've also just admired her for her content and her wit. Um, and now she's doing um, the first launch event we're doing uh, here in New York uh, at Twitter NYC. And she's going to be one of our speakers during that conversation. And she just is so remarkably inve invested in my success. And that's what you want from somebody who you admire to be like also concerned about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But um, she sent me this like author guide like, yay, you just wrote a book. Here's what to do next. Um, <laughs> and so cool. I've gained like this army of mentor sisters who mm. we help and mentor each other. And that's just, I think the most beautiful thing is just having a, a closer family and network of people who are like, oh, I'm also featured in modern history. Oh, we're connected. Um, mm -hmm. There is a situation where um, I think Kaya Brown and Melissa Thompson, who are both disability rights ad ad advocates on Twitter, um, 
connected and they were like, oh, I'm also featured in Blair's book, you know, like, so it's cool to create a community based on a project and you be um, it to manifest without you orchestrating it um, for it just to kind of evolve naturally. So that's probably been the most beautiful thing. And then other story, like there's so many beautiful stories, but yeah. this one last night happened. <laughs> if you could pass me the book. Uh -huh. um, my friend, uh, Mars Sebastian, who created the hashtag Blackout Day and the movement. So, you know, like amidst all these uh, horrible stories of police violence and police brutality, she was like, we need to have images of black people just being happy and joyful. So we did, there's Blackout Day. So she created that. Um, but she also created the hashtag, hashtag love for Leslie J when Leslie Jones was getting attacked by yeah. racists um, following Ghostbusters coming out. And um, it was so cool because she made that campaign and then Jada Pinkett Smith is using it. And then Margaret Cho is using it all to support Leslie Jones. Mm -hmm. And hold on. If you look at her page, it's on page 73. So if you're reading along, um, <laughs> uh, in response to the Steyer situation, digital media activist Mars Sebastian created the hashtag, hashtag love for Leslie J to flood Leslie's social media pages with messages of love and support with participation from entertainment industry leaders like Margaret Cho and Jada Pinkett Smith. And so yesterday we were all together, um, like our digital media friends and I like pointed out and I was like, oh girl, but wait. And I pointed to the page and I showed her her name. And then uh, her name's also bold, which means that there's an index mm -hmm. or a, a glossary entry for her as well. Mars Sebastian, a black woman activist of Antiguan descent and co-founder of Blackout, an international movement to celebrate black joy and life in the face of anti-black oppression. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool that you can, that I was able to like give my friend recognition for something that had been erased previously. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like pointed her to the book and she was like on the verge of tears. And yeah. that's, mm -hmm. I think the ultimate thing is when you can put your friends on through a project you've created. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I try to do is, you know, use the privilege that I have of being able to have a publisher, have the distribution of Penguin Random House to also elevate my friends um, and people who deserve it. Uh, so adding that to the conversation and showing Mars and Mars being so excited that's just part of the beauty of it. And it's with, like a never ending gift. Yeah, with the beauty of this journey in the process of writing it, now leading up to it, talking about it, these connections happening, and then the launch itself on October 16th, I mean, there's gotta be a balance. There's obviously stress involved, right? Oh, yeah. And what what kind of excitement is kind of like beating back some of that stress about the launch? Well, first things first, I'm on Lexapro, so that helps significantly with my anxiety. Shout out to psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to talk about mental health just kind of as a casual thing um, and a reality. But the things like the vision I have of somebody holding my book just in the world and I happen to walk by them, that's like a goal I have, you know? Like it's an abstract seemingly goal, but like I think that's powerful when like you're I'm not the one on the corner selling out my books to everybody, but people are really buying into this mm -hmm. experience. Um, and then also like the audiobook from January Lavoie, who um, is a black woman audiobook uh, recorder or a voiceover artist. And there's a SoundCloud link where you can preview it. And her voice just sounds like butter. And like the most <laughs> of the way I read books is mm -hmm. through audiobooks and like having the book to annotate. And so listening to my own audiobook was like, 
levels. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like this is the way I consume most books. Oh shit, this is how I'm consuming my own book. I wrote this, you know? <laughs> um, so kind of the hypeness just uh -huh. getting more and more escalated. But every time I tell somebody about the book, um, that reignites the excitement. Mm -hmm. But it is stressful, like trying to make sure that you invite everybody you're supposed to invite to this event. You thank everybody you're supposed to thank. My mom's doing a launch event in California on the 14th. That's stressful because I got to see all my family. Like, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's uh, but it's all worth it, you know. Yeah. Um, in fact, I have a, a family friend who is non-binary, a young person who recently asked their parents to buy a binder for their chest to you know more embody who they'd like to be in the world, um, see themselves as they view you know as they uh, as they feel inside um and so they had already heard of the book and then when they realized that i was a family friend they asked their aunt can we go to the book launch and i'm like yes they can go to the book launch give her my number or give them my number mm -hmm. um she's she her and they them pronouns um give her my number and i'd love for her to come you know that would be amazing but to know that adding making it inclusive of non-binary people already is speaking to non-binary people um, that's not a community I'm part of, but it's a community I'm allied to. So when you have your allyship validated by somebody in that community, that's ideal. Yeah, um, yeah. And when it is people who are closer in proximity to you than you thought, that's also really mm -hmm. exciting. Mm -hmm. Anything surprised you about yourself in this journey of the book? I still, like I, I was saying, I did not think I'd be publishing a book. Like, I look at it and I'm like, I wrote every word in there, minus like the copyright stuff and like the Library of Congress century. Um, just, you know, just the Library of Congress yes. century. Yeah. Um, but like, it still seems surreal. Um, because people like me, quote unquote, aren't supposed to be writing books like this. Not at this age, I'm 24, you know? And I even hear this from people who like are well-meaning mentors who are like, you're a baby. Like you have a book, you have two books, what, you know? And it, it makes that self-doubt even more loud where you're like, well, am I supposed to be doing this? Mm -hmm. Am I peaking? There's no such thing as peaking, by the way. There's mm -hmm. always room to grow and improve. Um, even after you die, your legacy lives on. But it just feels like something I wasn't supposed to do. But at the same time, I feel like I've been prepared for this my whole life. So it's like yeah. the internal conversation versus the societal pressure. You, you mentioned that there have been mental barriers. Are there any that you've, you know, almost halfway into your 20s have been able to shake? And part of this writing this book helped you shake some of your mental barriers? Oh, like, <laughs> so this is funny. But um, my friend, Brie Wernicke, who actually did the glossary, um, she's an emerging voiceover artist as well. And so it was cool to be like, hey, best friend, could you record this? She was like, yes, best friend. And I was like, great. We even wore, we both have matching scarves that we bought on different occasions. Um, she posted her scarf on Instagram and I was like, bitch, did I give you my scarf? And she was like, no, I bought this today. And I was like, look at us being best friends. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we both wore those scarves to the recording, even though it was like coast, cause I'm in New York, she's in California. Mm -hmm. um, so just like ways to have little connections. But anyway, we had an argument one time and she was like, you're not even that good of an author. And like, I like was really crushed by that for a long time. Cause like we, a real argument. Yeah. Like we were on a ski lift. We were on a like one of her family trips. They would go up to the mountains. I would come along. It'd be a bunch of like Nordic looking white people in Blair. Um, we would make up our own languages. It was fun. But I think it was just like uh, 
I was arguing about how like, I don't even fit in at the school. I'm going to move schools. And she was like, well, that's like, you know, like a defensive, like, well, I don't even care. You're not even, I don't even like riding with you, you know? And I don't even know if something that she remembers, but like for her to be, so I went back home and I was doing the the edits and the edits was like the biggest mental barrier. Cause it's like, it's when you get an essay back and it's all marked up, right? But it's like a whole book. It's like 200 pages. So I was like, I don't even want to look at this shit. Um, and I was telling her and she was like, well, I'll come over and let's do it together. And I was like, I'm gonna cry. But um, it was like coming back to those moments where we were like 12 years old. We were both outcasts. We we're both very nerdy. We'd make up languages together. Like we were, we were off the wall. Um, and we would sit down on the computer and do character designs and look up historical names. Um, we had the story about these two girls. It was basically us. Um, and they went to the Yakademi Academy. It was Academy backwards. It's basically the Academy, the Academy, you know, we thought we were clever. Um, and so it just took me back to that time because we're sitting in my living room mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. um, same house, like 10 years later um, or more, like 13 years later, <laughs> sitting together, going through the book and she's giving me encouragement. She's helping me um, formulate things. And um, she's an artist now she's able to contribute. So it was like a full circle of maybe the, not the source of my doubts, but having like one of the first arguments with your first best friend that you haven't, you know, an argument with. And then that lingering wound or scratch or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being healed 13 years later. Um, and so that was really powerful. Like she's probably one of the few people I still stay in touch with, like from my childhood, childhood. Because mm -hmm. uh, her parents, they weren't anti-black. She could come over to my house whenever. And I went to her house all the time. And she understood my younger sister. They understood mental illness. Um, and so now like it's, it's moments like that where like through friendship and through like my own story and having your friends come and collaborate with you. One of the best things I think about that communal nature is that when you when so many people succeed they feel like they have to leave their, their past behind them but it's mm -hmm. not true you can bring everything with mm -hmm. you and um having her do the glossary of the book was like a real testament to that mm -hmm. most of the personal stories about the book are like mm -hmm. i have more i have like like nobody's asked me about it but i really want to talk about it like how men have shaped the modern history mm. and like men backing off from like telling me what to do has shaped it i have a whole notes app of that um, so Le yes, let's go down that road. Okay, cool. Say more. Okay, should we start over? I mean, the things you love about that, that what's transpired, and also the things that have frustrated you. Yeah, let's, oh, let's oh, I could go for days. Okay, let's, let's go so, there. And then so, we'll, so the, we'll follow yeah, up with yeah, that. Yeah. It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, sorry, bra strap. I don't, I don't have shoulders made for bra straps. Nobody does. But anyway, um, <laughs> definitely keep that part in. Uh, so with the book. It being about her street, I've been like high key waiting for people to be uh, insufferable devil's advocates and be like, mm. what about men? But nobody has done it yet. So I'm asking myself, what about men? Well, Blair, <laughs> um, it was interesting because there are like three things that came out of male men not wanting to put male bias into the book, but still shaping it. Right. Um, so like LeVar Burton, he shouted us out. That's the whole reason we have the book. I asked him to do the blurb and I like, as soon as I found out we were doing an audiobook, I was like, LeVar, could you do the book? Could you do the voiceover? He was like, no, this is, you should have a woman's voice. You know, mm -hmm. like he hundred mm -hmm. percent like turned down what it would have been a paid opportunity to like prioritize women. And I think that's really admirable. And I was like, yo, 
my feminist ass needs to get myself together because like you're 100 right you know like oh no lavar's oh is more woke than me on this you know um and so that was a funny point but um then you have like my partner who identifies as a man and i would be reading like the input or like i'd be reading the intros and asking for his input and he also hates brainstorming so it was a tension point in the relationship um i was like what do you think he was like i don't know how to brainstorm this way and i'm like okay um <laughs> but the other thing was that he didn't want it to be through his lens like i would like what what should i add well i don't want to gatekeep well i don't want to qualify this so that was really exciting to see other folks step up but the most surprising one was that our index was done well not surprising indexes are done by dudes um publishing really needs to like level mm. up in terms of women being part of the more technical parts of the of bookmaking um <clears throat> But I learned a new word, patronomics. So patronomics is, you know, patriarch, nomics, naming. Um, so it's when you have something listed by last name, by the man's name. And um, they sent an email to us and it was like, uh, so I'm doing the index and I just wanted to make sure that you wanted the index to be listed patronomically, even though it's a feminist book. Just asking, not trying to provide male input. I just think it's a little archaic. And I was like, 100%. Oh. Get rid of patronomics. So Whoa. it's all listed by first name, just like the yeah. intro. So I thought that was like a really powerful thing um, where throughout this process, we've just been leveling up and it hasn't just been women who've been the most woke or non-binary folks, but it's been um, people of all genders. Um, and then there's something that we caught, uh, Caitlin Ketchum and I gotta catch them all, even the mistakes. Um, that was a really <laughs> cheesy dad joke, sorry. <laughs> um, but we would be in the, um, in the glossary, there were things like um, Michelle Obama's entry, and um, we added that she's married to President Barack Obama, you know? But then Barack Obama's entry, we didn't say that he was married to Michelle. Mm -hmm. We left that out, and it's very common. You'll be like, you, you know, they'll have um, things mm -hmm. like George Clooney, yeah. and even though Amal Clooney uh, was like the chair of the Met Gala, it's like, George Clooney's wife. And what we did on um, my platform, Equality for Her, uh, Tora Shea actually wrote the tweet. She was like, oh, here we have Amal Clooney and her husband. You know, because yeah, yeah, it is yeah, yeah, Amal yeah, yeah. Clooney's show. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so we made it equal so that if somebody has a spouse, if we're mentioning the spouse, then we have to mention the spouse in, in both, not mm -hmm. just in terms of um, uh, a woman being qualified by belonging to a man. Mm -hmm. So um, there were things that, challenged me to go beyond my awareness that were inspired by men being like, well, am I taking up space here? And I thought that was pretty cool. What are you tired of hearing? Well, what I was tired of hearing when we were doing the, when we were submitting it out, mm. why aren't there that many white women in it? Or why are there no white women in it? They would say, why are there no white women in it? But there are like two white women in it, three, four. There are four, let me count. There are four white women, you know, but like that's the attitude people bring about diversity. Like we already have a, a black, we have a Muslim. We even have a black Muslim. That's it. We checked all the boxes, you know? Um, and there have been so many, you know, great tributes to really powerful, amazing white women. You know, a lot of folks know when they think of feminism, they think of Gloria Steinem, but they not, might not think of Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a black woman who was a sharecropper in the South 
and worked for voting rights and helped to found SNCC and did all this amazing work. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that one person's more valued than the other. It does mean that some people get a lot more airtime than others. Um, but there are people who are saying things like, can you add uh, maybe like a Harriet Tubman? And I'm like, first of all, you fundamentally do not understand. It's modern history. <laughs> like, right. I know that we often talk about slavery and Harriet Tubman is coming up a lot how she brought people to freedom. <laughs> Shout out to the Nicki Minaj fans. But um, it's it's not, it's, it's anachronistic, right? It doesn't make sense in the context of the chronology. Um, but there are people who are like, well, I don't really, um, I get this a lot still, like even on Goodreads, one of the reviews from the advanced uh, reader was, I just didn't know many of the women in the book. And it's like, that's the point, you know, like. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Like, I loved it. I just didn't know who they were. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. Congrats. Now you do if you read it. Like, unless you're just looking at the table of contents and you're like, I don't know these people. I don't know new friends. 2018. I can't read about them. You know, like, unless you're that team, whatever. Um, I get that so often where people are like, I don't, I don't know who these people are. And it's like, good. That means you're learning. Learning is great. Knowledge is power at the end. Um, and then what else? What else? Oh, my favorite um, that I get is that it's too gay. That uh, one person who I reached out to, one of my friends um, over in uh, Vermont, one of like the activists there, um, activist, but is not intersectional, does not work at all with any LGBT materials. And I knew that, but I didn't really know why. Turns out it's because they're homophobic. Um, but they were like, I can't share your book. There's too many LGBT in it. And the best thing was on Twitter, somebody put, well, I'm gonna turn this book into a three-piece suit so there can be one more LGBT in it. And I was like, oh, hey, <laughs> that was a good that. one. I really like that. Um, <laughs> but it turned into like a whole movement where people um, on different pages on Instagram were like, buy this book. There's too many queer people in it. It's perfect. That's my qual, you know, that's my qualifier. <laughs> Um, I Love even it. added it as one of the rave reviews. Like, mm -hmm. um, I had it on the website for a minute, but I didn't want it to confuse people. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a rave review, too many LGBT in it, you know? Um, I thought it would have been a great blurb. But um, I think people just struggle with the fact that it's a different type of book than you might expect of this um, kind of chronicling of people's stories. One of the most frustrating things about the, the submission process though, was people who came back and were like, well, I don't know if Rihanna's appropriate for young people. And it's like, you could not ask for a more wholesome queen. Like <laughs> ambassador Rihanna, honorary doctorate Rihanna, like opened a cancer care center as soon as she had enough change to take care of herself and her family and then mm -hmm. named it after her grandparents, Rihanna. Mm -hmm. like spoke at Harvard, Rihanna, like created a 40 shade foundation, Rihanna. Like I really should have sent the email back, but I just blocked their email address. Mm -hmm. um, but it's people who we don't allow to be heroes and people who are committed to being gatekeepers. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, I don't want Missy Elliott to be a hero. So I can't re recognize that, but we have to understand that Missy Elliott revolutionized the music video genre. She's written all of your favorite hits in the hip hop mm -hmm, sense, mm -hmm. you know? Um, she continues to be super aware and inclusive of LGBTQ folks, of civic action. She posted about, you know, getting registered to vote, about the believing survivors. She's a survivor herself. Um, and so just all those stories that we don't really hear about. Um, but people were so adamant. Um, I was so mad when this woman sent me the, can you remove Rihanna from it? And I was like, can we throw it at her? Like, what the heck, you know? Um, but 
you know, you kind of take it as you as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody's going to be all about it, but what pisses me off is that the people who uh, make the decisions are often the ones tasked with deciding, or are often the people who are disagreeing. Sure. Um, but I was so excited that Penguin, um, their smaller imprint, Ten Speed Press, worked out because that's like that's huge distribution. You know, like when I tell people I have a book coming out, they're like, oh, whatever. And then I'm like, it's with Penguin Random House. They're like, what? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a little mic drop, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we held out for um, uh, the right the right publisher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These f- folks that you're running into that are that are saying there's there's too much of this. There's you know. It's also because the exposure that they get and the things that they perpetuate are things that our media are and all of our public figures are so whitewashed and so their sexuality is just erased. Completely. Um, like a lot of folks uh, don't know that Angela Davis is a queer woman as well or like Roxane Gay. I think that part of the problem with erasure is that there are people don't have a vision of possibility of what inclusion can look like. Mm-hmm. So it takes things like this book for people to realize you can talk about um you can talk about sex work in a young adult book. You know, I talk about how Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, because of the lack of dedicated resources to LGBTQ youth, were homeless and uh, resorted to survival sex work to survive, um, something that still happens today with a lot of young LGBTQ people. But it seems like so scary and so forbidden to discuss. And mm-hmm. once it happens and you talk about it and, you know, like I was talking to a 13 year old and I was like, um, they were looking at it and they're like, sex work. Oh, yeah, that's like the more respectable way to discuss because uh, what you usually hear at that age is prostitution. And you hear about it, even if you're doing a Bible study, you hear about things like concubines. You hear about things like um, how Seattle taxes on sex work was actually what built Seattle, you know, but they'll say prostitution and really demean the people who um, have engaged in this um, this form of work, you know. Um and then you have to unlearn it. So I feel if you can show people from a young age um, and just give permission for people to, instead of unlearning horrible things, to just learn it the more respectful, um, responsible way the first time, you don't have anything to unlearn later on um, if you approach it from a place of compassion and understanding at first. So I think compassion and understanding um, is how people should read this book. And I think just absorb information, you know, if it seems something new to you, if you're looking at the book and you're like, what non-binary, what does that mean? There's a glossary entry for it, you know? The unknown doesn't have to be scary or bad. Hey everybody, it's Tommy. I hate doing this probably as much as you'd rather not be hearing me going on and on and on about how we have to every now and again Pump the brakes on our show and ask you, the listeners, for your support. Remember, we're an independent podcast straight out of Minneapolis. We don't have ads or sponsors. And I'm not saying with the right partnership, we maybe one day um, not consider that. But this podcast is free. It's available for streaming to just about anywhere, to anyone. And uh, part of why we're able to more than double our episodes in season two is because of the generosity, commitment, and solidarity of our 12 Patreon monthly sustaining Weapon of Choice community members. So I'm asking all the other listeners to join these value contributors now. And you can join at our Patreon and give monthly. Sign up for that at patreon.com forward slash Weapon of Choice podcast. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Weapon of Choice podcast. The link is also in the show notes and we've got some levels of contributions you can make at as low as $1 a month, $1 a month or more, whatever you can part ways with. We truly appreciate it. Um, we've got a few tiers. You got the front line. So if you're on the front lines, you're giving one dollar more a month. Our fighters are giving five dollars a month or more. Our warriors are giving ten dollars or more per month. Our disruptors are giving twenty or more a month, and our revolutionaries are giving fifty dollars or more per month. There's some uh, some little perks and thank you gifts in return for your support. And and if there's anyone out there, check this out, who wants to part ways with a thousand dollars for your thousand dollars for that contribution. Weapon of Choice will give you a producer credit for the rest of season two. So you'll be credited as an honorary producer for your $1,000 contribution. And uh, we'll keep bringing you more episodes that you love, that you look forward to, that you've been listening to. We've got at least half a dozen more to finish out season two. And uh, yeah, $1,000 will make you an honorary producer the rest of the way. We have 12 sustaining Weapon of Choice community members, 12, but we're hoping to at least triple that number by the end of this season. Can we get to 36 monthly sustainers this season? Can we get to 50? Can we get to 100? Hell, we want to get to 1,000. We really believe in this show. We know a lot of you believe in this show. We have 12 people who really, really believe in it, and they're giving their dollars because they do. And we'd love to you, you know, we'd love for you to hop on board with the people who help keep this show going and make keep making strides to do bigger things one dollar more a month twenty dollars more a month whatever you can part ways with honorary producer for some generous person out there thousand bucks gets you that we'd love all your support you can give uh we appreciate it i'm gonna get back to this awesome interview good chatting with you thank you we're blessed and you know let's all do this together in solidarity keep those fists high and let's keep going back to the show You know, and you're, now you're talking future, futuristic, right? And like, so another, I'll pose another futuristic what if. Um, so what if we all weren't sectioned off as individuals and in all these identities? Not that lifting up different identities, especially the most marginalized and oppressed ones, isn't necessary. But what if all of our complexities were released to swirl around in the atmosphere? Well, you know, I watched a lot of cartoons as a kid. Um, let me preface it by saying that. Mm-hmm. Fairly Odd Parents did an episode about this. And it was Blob World, right? So everybody was a gray blob. And you might recall it if you're listening and watched Fairly Odd Parents religiously as I did. Um, but Timmy, being an average kid, was also turned into a blob. He said, I wish I, everyone was the same. And he was still the same, but he still had his pink hat, right? Um, but you still had some blobs who are two that are lighter. And then you had some blobs that were slightly darker. And then again, this, this um, sameness was erased and then, well, I'm the greatest, most boring blob. No, I'm the most boring blob. I have the least the least things. It's like when you have a group of nonconformists and then you have like a contest of who's not conforming the most, right? Mm. Um, uh, or even in, in groups where piety is very important. Um, amongst, uh, if you look at like uh, Muslim women, for example, there's constantly this conversation of, oh, I'm more pious, I'm more modest than you. Um, even though modesty in, in itself isn't supposed to be focused on vanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, supposed to be. But I think it's human nature 
for us to create in defining ourselves in the society, right? We try to create hierarchies to position ourselves above or below other people. So I think that will duplicate itself over and over again, no matter what is removed from us. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the beautiful thing too, um, and I was speaking about this in Berlin at a, at a, um, a high school and this high school student, um, because of fascism, there's this big fear of naming anything by race or by group. So when I was saying there are different groups, different groups, he was like, isn't it racist to say different groups? And I was like, no, 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 like let's back up. When you're saying different groups, what you're not, you're not doing is saying this group is better or this group is worse. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. But you're acknowledging that, you know, the Turkish community, they have food, they have spices, they have fabrics, they have, um, you know, traditions that might be different mm -hmm. from a Polish community. You know, that doesn't mean that Turkish is better than Polish or Polish is better than Turkish. It means that these differences are beautiful, that we should learn about them, that we should understand them. Um, and so I think that's one of the most beautiful things about what America should and is narratively um, aspiring to, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not that's material fact is up for argument. Um, but this idea, not of a melting pot where we all turn into these gray blobs and then higher, you know, give ourselves hierarchy um, of assimilation, but where uh, when I was in school, we called it the, the fruit salad of America, where you have like <laughs> tomatoes from Italy and you have lemon wedges from Spain, you know, um, mm -hmm. at a very advanced school. But um, this idea that we can all coexist in our beauty and learn and um, invest in and value. Um, so I think that that would be that would be sad for me. You know, I think so much of how I define myself is from my community, from the things I enjoy um, in this like radical individualism that we have. It's also about how you find community and individuality. So I think if all that defines me was released into the universe, what would I be, you know? Yeah. yeah. One, one, one to follow that up. So that, that like race or competition for like, like you, the example, like who's more pious or, you know, whatever the example. Blot-like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. blot, yeah, great. Like, I feel like that is so infused with like that, those tenets of capitalism, right? Like that, that happens smack the intersection of capitalism trying to get us to compete over one another. Um, and this is something that I always kind of think about, naming this like competition even within ourselves as we try to be all-inclusive in a capitalist society. Yeah, and that's interesting too because I'm constantly on these panels where people are talking about like conscientious consumerism. Um, Can that exist? Right, no. <laughs> I mean, what I tell people, and I actually say this all the time in my life, is just like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. It doesn't mean that like, I'm gonna knowingly buy from some company that participates in, in you know, slave labor or prison labor. But at the same time, you have folks like Nike being lifted up for, um, you know, giving these platitudes of having, you know, Colin Kaepernick, which is powerful in itself because other companies haven't been right, but it was also very self-serving. You know, you see stock going up, they know who their market is. Um, but also you have young people who are in jail for stealing Nikes to try to be cool, to try to, you know, fit into that um, stylishness, that hierarchy. And then they end up being the same people who are making Nikes in prison because it feeds into mass incarceration, which feeds into capitalism. And so um, it is it is inescapable, but it is, and I think the idea that people talk about with conscientious consumerism is that, okay, well, I know that Nike does prison labor. I'm not going to buy for them from them. Um, but it also is this idea that one person taking one action is going to solve the world. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, a speaker, Anand Garandas, 
Um, I'm pretty sure I butchered his name, but he's super dope. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how if, if neoliberalism had his way, then tote bags would be the thing that got us to freedom. And if tote bags <laughs> were gonna get us to freedom, we would have been free many times over by now. Ooh. And he said this during, like in a room of like fairly privileged white people. And I was sitting on the panel next to him, just like snapping yeah, it yeah, up, yeah. like, yes, you know? Um, and I didn't realize it was being live streamed. So uh, that live stream is available. I'll send it over for some for some gigs. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the panel still, like we were talking about like neoliberalism and capitalism and still at the end of the panel, somebody came up and said, what's one thing I can do today that can solve? And I'm like, how, I didn't say this, but I wanted to, <clears throat> like how audacious of you to think that going to an hour long panel is going to give you something that you can materially do to end capitalism to end slavery you must think that the world's problems are so small that they needed you to respond to them alone right um and so i think that you know it's a constant awareness that there's no one thing that we can do to end every bad thing right yeah um but it is building understanding having those conversations um but it was funny because she had said like i don't want it to be um I'm tired of all the talk, but the talk is what, you know, like these, like capitalism, for example, it's a construct, right? It's yeah. an idea that people have to buy into literally with dollars, but yep. also ideologically. How do we start to shift that ideology? It's by, you know, naming things like prison labor, mm-hmm. naming things like private prisons, um, realizing that Wall Street is called Wall Street because there was a little literal wall of posts that slaves were attached to. It was a port of entry for slaves. Um, and those wall, like, you know, the the wooden wall it's mm-hmm. still in the ground at Wall Street. They're just cut very short, so it's a street. Um, but understanding that like when people say American capitalism isn't built on slavery, it 100% is literally built on slavery. Yeah. Um, and how that feeds into things today, like, oh, I'm gonna go help the inner city. Um, so I think it's a matter of like understanding yes. that we can't buy our way to freedom. Um, but practically, because we live in a capitalist system, sometimes it is buying our way to freedom, you know, like yeah. um, in bail abolition, that's a, a long term process of reform, right? Yeah. Or, or complete abolition. But at the same time, people need to be bailed out of jail. Yep. Um, and it's the same way that uh, you can't call somebody who was enslaved complicit in slavery for buying their spouse so that their spouse can be free alongside them, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think it's all, uh, it, it's relative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it's different, right? So like yeah. uh, encouraging somebody to buy from indie books versus buying from Amazon, um, making sure that the supply chain of getting this book printed didn't engage in you know sweatshop labor. Um, so you can speak out the injustice, but you also don't. You're not what shaming from it. Amazon really gonna do? Yeah, you know you're not gonna be immune from it. Yeah. Um, and so I think too, it's uh, a holier than now that we have in society too, where we decide I'm more woke than you, therefore I'm not going on to- social media? Oh, especially. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I'm not gonna help you gain further access or knowledge, but at the same I'm time- I'm gonna call you out when I'm gonna call you works out. over here. I'm gonna call you out for being capitalist while I'm also tweeting from my smartphone that was made for $4 in a sweatshop um, that I just upgraded because I saw the new Apple you know, event. Oh, I also yeah. have an iPhone, right? So it's like, um, <laughs> this whole thing was actually really like just to close it all up yeah. uh, was encapsulated by um, I was on this the, the trip in Germany where the Social Democratic Party had um, paid for us to come along to meet with Black Lives Matter activists. It was a really like um, intentional um, event where they even had a conversation about colonization where no white people were present and they just let like us black activists be amongst our people and have a transnational conversation. Um, 
at the same time, one of the activists got up and I'm not gonna call people out, but we all there, we knew what happened. Um, he was like, well, then you have these liberal activists who are using money from neoliberal corporations. And I'm like, okay, pause, because we're being funded by a literal neoliberal like political organization to be here. So when it comes to that whole holier than now, mm -hmm. we have to reflect on ourselves before we look at shaming other people. Um, because, you know, you could say that it's better to be vegan all day long for like, you know, for health or for um, income inequality or for like, you know, uh, water preservation for farmland preservation. Um, but if you don't have a lived experience of somebody who works, you know, all day, every day, who doesn't have time to make food for their, you know, three kids, you can't say, oh, just, you know, boil some rice and potatoes and that'll sat satiate you the same way that a value meal for McDonald's will. So um, I think the reality is that it's very intimidating to look at the whole capitalist system and think that we can solve it by ourselves. But that's also a function of capitalism. We can't solve it by ourselves. We have to be communal. Um, we have to be social in our in our problem solving um, and look into um, uh, government constructs like socialism and communism and be more communal instead of thinking that uh, my wallet can save this community when I need to work with the community. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's that's sort of what's a, there's like a illuminating moment even in that phrasing of conscientious consumerism because it's it points out that if you're st you're still invent invested in capitalism or consumerism if you're looking for a a conscientious a clean yeah, yeah exactly well, I'm looking for diet capitalism Look, I've got a lot of investments I got a mortgage I got like so I would love it if this stuck around but was just a little nicer to play yeah. with it's like that's not going to work And so the same dude Anand he was actually like that's why I, he's like, he's like, I can't stand thought leaders. The dude who said the tote bag statement. He's like, I can't stand yeah. thought leaders because thought leaders are called thought leaders by corporations that don't want the status quo to be challenged. So if you're a thought leader, that means you're not threatening to the status quo and your thoughts aren't very revolutionary. And I was like, bombshell. Again, yeah. this is a great, I'll show you the live stream because it's just me like <laughs> snaps galore. Uh, and him just dropping like truth bomb after truth bomb. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I guess TLDR. I don't really have an answer, but it's gonna take all of us, you know? Yeah. So how, how do you, Blair, balance cynicism and hope? Well, the Lexapro helps, right? Um, <laughs> depression. Um, but I tried to, it was, so after I was arrested in Baton Rouge, trying to be this super pious, like um, very like woke, hyper woke, like activist, like, I don't even know how to, like just what you would envision like a neoliberal concept of Martin Luther King where like none of my money's going to anything personal. I'm just, you know, modern Jesus or something. Mm -hmm. And so that just became really taxing because I'm extremely traumatized from dealing with this. I don't want to spend any money on myself because that's selfish, that's capitalistic. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'm also like, I don't have shampoo in my house. Like I don't have lotion. Like things that I need to take care of myself, but feeling so burnt out and caught up with not being harmful to the world that I was actually being harmful to myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to lean into things that I enjoy and love. Like I remember the weekend that, so um, like when people talk about Pokemon Go, it's actually really complicated for me because when Pokemon Go came out, that's when I felt like I had to spring into action to take care of um, standing up for my community in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. Louisiana. And then you had Philando Castile who was murdered. And that all happened- Two blocks from my house. Oh, wow. Like, but 
it all happened in that time, in that short span, um, right after the 4th of July when Pokemon Go came out. And so like my friends who were able to play Pokemon Go, those were a lot of folks who were white and who like didn't feel this burden of constant media pressure of, you know, black people being killed and then also felt safe enough to go out and play Pokemon Go outside mm. when at a time where like, uh, after I was arrested, like hearing a siren, a police siren after dealing with the SWAT trucks, LRAD siren, nah fam, like I was disassociating constantly like several times a day. Um, and so there was a point where uh, my friend had asked me to go come to a water balloon fight. And I was like, a water balloon fight? Like what the heck? And I was like, you know what, let's go. But that day, three three police were killed in Baton Rouge by a sniper. And I felt like, this is another point where I'm putting myself back to speak up, but also realizing I don't have to do it by myself. And so really bringing a community in. And so I think that was a transformative moment for me to work with like um, LSU, my alma maters, their student body to have a community space for people to like have their feelings about this police shooting, but for it not to um, somehow erase or take blame for this uh in the context of like Alton Sterling being killed as somehow causing yeah. this, um, you know, lone sniper yeah, yeah, to yeah. Um, behave reprehensibly. Sure. So the following weekend, so like that was two weeks after I'd gotten arrested, my partner and I went out, we played Pokemon Go. Yeah. And like, that was in a small deal. I saw the selfie on my phone of us like going out and play. I dressed in blue cause I had po- I'd picked the blue team. He was dressed in the yellow cause he could pick the yellow team. Cause like that was a big thing. Cause it was like when the teams were first coming out um, and everybody <laughs> was like, was I can't remember, yeah, um, but Valor or something. Yeah, I think yeah. it was, that was the team. Um, and so I picked that team and like we had dressed up and like we were like going out in um, Northeast DC, like all the churches and all the like Pokestops. Um, there was a Pokestop by this dope sushi restaurant on H Street. And that was just like a moment of joy where like, I do have these fears. I do live this reality. I fucking love Pokemon though. Like, let me live my life. And so um, that became you a moment it out of with like- play? Yeah, bounce it out with play. And like, I watch hella YouTube videos like Defunct Land, Disneyland, like, um, what is it? There's Defunct Land, there's um, uh, Game Theorist. I love Game Theorist, Saber Sparks channel. Um, he does these channel these shows about like um, what ruined Fox animation, and he just kind of like rants, and it's like really fun or like wisecrack where they talk about the philosophy of things like Aladdin, you know, like mm-hmm. things that um, well, are completely. I'm just gonna put my mic down. Y'all just go ahead and talk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's stuff that's completely separate from what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's so great for me to be able to reach out to Saber Spark, who actually became a friend of mine. Yeah. So I was just like <laughs> your video, like yeah, I have my blue check, so I can get around pretty easy, but. Um, <laughs> I went on Twitter and I messaged him and I was like, your video on how to like contact Disney uh, or how to contact Cartoon Network to get them to stop playing uh, Teen Titans Go constantly and like basically like exhausting the network. (laughs) That related to to, like my activism, but it's also not anything having to do with death of people, which is lit, you know? So that's my, that's my outlet. I, I, every morning I eat um, breakfast in the bathtub because I'm a weirdo. I have my little YouTube on my phone and I watch Defunct Land or like game theorists about like why Mario Kart's the most deadly game in existence. Like I don't need to know the physics of Mario, but now I do. Like it's just a relief to be able to engage in things that have nothing to do with real life. And that's sustaining you and that's energizing you? Oh, 100%. See how excited I am? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thank you so much. 
Um, and we look forward to the book and spreading it far and wide for, for the benefit of uh, a beautiful continuous writing career for you and all, you. all that more. So. And if you're a listener, do like reach out to me on Twitter if you want to chat, if you liked what I had to say. I love being able to connect with different audiences. So totally mm-hmm. hit me up. My DMs well, are always open. No marriage proposals, please. What's one quick thing you want all listeners to know? Oh, like just in general, like people to know, like something important. I think that people <laughs> like, oh, yeah, wait, no, give yourself a self breast exam. Like everybody, no matter your gender, like yeah. this is an important practical thing. Um, I always like to give like those like nebulous like TED talk statements at the end. But this is a practical thing that I'm really dedicated to right now. Yep. But giving yourself a self exam, um, if you don't know how to do it, there's like WikiHow articles on it. But basically um, thinking of your breast tissue as a as like a plate and then going around the plate, um, like dancing your fingers along it, pr- applying medium pressure because everybody can get breast cancer, but everybody can prevent breast cancer. So yeah. um, check awesome. your breasts once a month, make a calendar invitation for yourself, do awesome. the tub. But it's important, and so please do it. And the handle is on Twitter and Instagram? At Blair Imani. Beautiful. All right. We're out of here, y'all. Thanks, Blair. Thank you. Toodles. Blair, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you, Blair. So appreciative of your time. Weapon of Choice podcast is brought to you by Special Menu Productions. Check out all the stuff we're doing at specialmenuproductions.com. You'll find all of our former episodes for Weapon of Choice podcast, as well as some film projects we've been working on. Uh, And if you want to collaborate, shoot us a line, drop us an email. Uh, We'd love to be in touch. That's right. Um, We got to know, we got to know what art are you currently taking in that's giving you a boost, recharging your soul, because it's so important that we feed our soul. And I know that I need good music. I need to even witness some dancing. I don't got to dance. You don't need me. You don't need me to dance. But I need to go take it in, take in the arts, whether it's live or in my headphones or coming out of the speaker. So tell me what you're taking in. Tell, tell us, tell Andrew and I what you're taking in and what's really giving you that strength on any given day to just keep going because you know you got it, you know you're tough, and you know we're all going to be in this together and we're going to liberate each other together. Let us know at our email if you want to write at length, but you can always shoot us a DM or a message on Facebook. But our email is weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next one, everybody. Later.